Hello everyone and welcome to the ORX podcast. My name is Simon Wills and I'm Executive Director of ORX. In this podcast, we're going to explore the factors that we think are needed to innovate risk management practices. And as part of that, we'll be introducing our latest initiative, IDP, the Innovation Data Platform. I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Mark Cook, and Mark's leading the IDP project for us, but was also formerly General Manager, Head of Group Operational Risk at HSBC. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Alan. So um, just before we go into our discussion around innovation, I just wanted to mention that at the end of our section, I'll be handing over to the uh, wonderful OREX news team, and they'll be telling you about the top five operational risk events covered in the global media in the last month. Anyway, on to our main theme for today, which, which is innovation. I presume a lot of people who are listening know about RX, but RX is the world's largest operational risk association. Our members are 104 of the biggest banks and insurers in the world. And really, our mission as an organization is to advance the practice of operational risk management. And at the moment, we feel that that means helping the industry to innovate. And that's a tough mission to set ourselves because innovation is hard. To innovate, you need skills and data and technology and access to capital, and you need a culture that's receptive to innovation. And you need good ideas. And we've set ourselves the objective as an association of encouraging innovation in our sector. And that's why we've come up with the IDP idea, and it's why we're having this podcast. Let me start from the beginning, which is our presumption, which is that innovation in risk is hard. Mark, you have a world's more practical experience about trying to make innovation happen in risk within a bank. What do you think? I think it is hard. Um, It's probably worth just unpacking a bit why it's hard, why it's hard to enlarge institutions. So... First of all, you've got to recognize the sort of context with which people are leading risk and compliance activity in banks today. The banks themselves are going for a phenomenal period of change. There won't be a single bank out there that's not talking about how it is digitalizing its business. And that change is changing very much the context of how those banks operate and how they deal with their customers. And it's changing the nature of the risks those banks face. You've then got The nature of risk and compliance itself, it has historically been very people-centric in the sense it relies upon very experienced practitioners to bring experience of, of the nature of the risks and advice in terms of how those can be best managed. It has historically not been an area where there's been a heavy level of automation or technology use. I mean, that is changing. And it's been an area that is relatively conservative. So you've got an environment where... As part of a bank that is changing the way in which it operates, you've got a a need to really take an organization along with the bank in terms of thinking about how you can therefore innovate practice, innovate risk management, and particularly sort of almost shift away from the old sort of inspection insurance base, the detect and correct philosophy, 
and start to move into being much more interactive, much more dynamic in terms of looking at how you can support these businesses really to predict and identify issues before they happen and therefore prevent them. So there's almost like a shift going on between more the analog style of risk management into digital risk management. And for that, we're going to need new ideas and we're going to need to bring new practice to bear. And none of that is particularly easy within the current construct of how these banks are designed and operated. Thank you, Mark. And what you've said broadly has been echoed in the conversations that we've had with risk leaders from across the RX membership over the last year. And actually last year, we authored a report called Right Time, Right Place, which sort of articulated very, you know, with that as background, still articulated, I think, a very optimistic vision for where risk needs to head. And it really focused on two core themes around risk needing to become more active and risk needing to optimise. And the optimization piece is about improving the effectiveness and efficiency of day-to-day risk management. And it really operates in an environment where you already have data, where you already have tools and experts. And really, it's about optimising those, making your framework simpler, more standardised, more automated, more dynamic, more quantifiable, and then getting that information in a timely fashion to the business customer. And then the active piece really is about spotting the big the big new material risks before they hit you. And it's an environment in which you're unlikely to have tools or experts or data, and the future and the past can look very different. You might not even have a past to work from. And there, I think the picture's a lot less clear. The only common theme we're seeing really is experimentation. Are there new data or opinions or perspectives that we can bring into the space that will improve our ability to give us early warning to senior management? And I think that they're both spaces in which we we should anticipate innovation, but really very differently, I think. Perhaps in the optimised space, you might expect fewer but bigger bets because the system's already there and you've got more certainty. And in the active space, I think you go back to that theme of experimentation that you'll see more and smaller bets because you you don't know what's going to work. You have less confidence around what you're doing. But starting with optimised, Mark, do you recognise that as a description of where people need to go? And have you got any thoughts on, on what they need to do? I actually think that ORX description of optimise and active, and not one at the expense of the other, I think you need to do both, is really helpful. Certainly recognise the optimization space. So there, there are already structures in place. There are processes in place. Many of those are quite mechanistic. They lend themselves to further automation. There are better ways that we can create that you know, bring information to bear within the business themselves, can be more timely and more usable. We will see innovation take place in the space of actually making these processes more effective. And by doing so, freeing up capacity to really start to look at risk in a different way. So at its first instance, making the existing world work better is really valuable. What about active, Mark? Because the, the traditional bulwarks of, of risk management is data and this is our ex talking, that's one of our businesses and experts. And the problem in the active space is you might not have either. And therefore, what do you what do you fall back on? If you use the same tools as you're using in the BAU space, you're going to come up with very similar answers. You're, you're not going to be able to look over the horizon. So have you seen any innovation in that active space, Mark, or is it just too hard? I get excited by the whole 
a notion of being more active, more dynamic, more predictive and preventative, bringing tools that are much more embedded within the businesses themselves. I think where we're seeing the shift in terms of using technology, and particularly AI, is we're at the cusp of a revolution which has been driven by data. And, and the new insights will be very data hungry, I think is the term that I've heard used before. You know, we have a lot of data about our businesses, sort of micro-operating data within our business lines. And that's a real asset. Now, that asset has to be recaptured and refined in a way that can be used with new tooling. And that is one of the challenges. We also need very much to see new ideas being brought to bear. And again, there's real positive sort of movement in that space. We're seeing an increase in people developing businesses, reg tech, risk tech businesses, that are bringing to the market new ways of uh, creating insights and intelligence to these businesses based on data that is available. So again, helping businesses shift to be more data-driven and creating more timely insights that allow them to really understand their risk better and manage the risk better. That's all out there. Having said all that, there are still quite a few barriers in terms of making that whole activity easier and really getting the shift that we have the potential to see really take off in this space. I agree. And I think if you return to those sort of factors of innovation, the data, the skills, the tool, the capital to, to risk, data is just such a bedrock in our space. And people find, I think, find the link quite surprising. But actually, innovation and the data challenge are one of the reasons why, since 2019, RX has put so much work into developing our existing risk taxonomies. And actually, just yesterday, we published the first industry reference controls library. So I think 716, I could have the number wrong, reference controls categorized by risk. And the point of that is to be helpful to our members, to accelerate their own work, to save them time, to save them money. But it also, and this is really important in the innovation space, it creates scale in data. And that means that you can build tools for a larger population and you can make more progress. You can learn more quickly. You know, this is one of the real areas where Rx has helped the industry dramatically. You need structure to be able to make sense of these organizations. It's having data that, that you can make sense of. I mean, let's put aside the fact you need high quality data. If you're data driven and the data isn't isn't representative of the nature of your business or how it's operating, you don't you don't get the insights you would ordinarily want. But when you start to you know, work on these initiatives to sort of be able to create structures, structures that then can be used to create a basis for those inputs to new ways of taking that data and creating insight, you have the opportunity to scale. You make it easier for applications to plug into data sets. You create schemas of those data sets. And that is fantastic. But I think you get a secondary benefit to that by starting to create reference and a way of describing data that is consistent from one institution to the next, you open up insights beyond the institution themselves. You create the ability to compare how you're operating and what you're seeing in your world versus somebody else's world versus a peer world. That brings a whole new level of risk intelligence to bear. And it's something really that Rx has been at the forefront for some time, data pooling and creating insights about how do my losses compare with somebody else. There is value in that. Now, if you do that across a wider range, a wider domain range of NFR, you have the potential to create a, a much more innovative way of managing risk in its own right. You have the potential to create more capability and more intelligence in its own right. So then working through those factors of innovation, so data tick, 
let's tackle skills next. They're the skills that everybody wants. So where do you find them, Mark? How do you access the skills that you need to, to innovate? That is quite hard because it's a very different skill set to what's traditionally been seen in the sort of risk and compliance world. We've grown from a world of expert practitioners in terms of understanding the nature of the risk, in terms of how you control it. And now we're asking for people that are capable of data engineering, how you look at the application of tooling, using artificial intelligence, working with new technologies, looking at ways that you can bring data together at scale and actually bring these applications to bear. This is, this is a, a very different capability and skill set than what you typically find in risk and compliance. It gets even more challenging because to get those skill sets into risk and compliance, you need to compete with other areas that are demanding those skill sets. And we're seeing the businesses themselves going through radical change as they embrace different types of mechanisms, both to interact with their customers, but also as they sort of really modularize the way that they build their internal activities. They use the technology to drive efficiency and capability within their own organization. Those front-end businesses are really sucking in all of those available skills that are now needed in the risk and compliance space. So they're having to compete in a scarce labor pool. That is really quite challenging, which is why we're seeing the emergence of businesses outside of the banks themselves who are bringing those skill sets to bear and starting to develop products and services and capabilities that those banks can use. But there is a challenge there. Those third parties, those reg tech, risk tech firms and bringing them to bear is not easy in its own right. So step back a little bit. You, you need to do this. You need to, to digitalize. You, you need to innovate. But to do that, you need to access some, what are in any organization, scarce resources. You need skills, you need data, you need capital, you need technology. And currently, the supply of those is, is limited and also fragmented. And I think coming on to the, the IDP initiative, that's really about the opportunity to try and unify, to bring onto a platform the data, the skills, the technology, the appetite to try to innovate all into one place. And, and then that unification really, we hope, Mark, opens up a, a world of possibilities. So do, do you want to sort of describe the IDP idea, Mark? So IDP, or Innovation Data Platform, to give it its full name, it, it is a new initiative that is being developed with RX, but also in partnership with Amazon Web Services, McKinsey Company, and Tart Consulting Services, really great partners. And I think those partners were attracted to this because of the, the potential that this initiative has to really help the industry move forward in terms of its risk practice and bringing risk innovation to bear. Risk as a service marketplace. It's built on a secure by design cloud platform. It takes full advantage of the various AWS assets and tool sets. On one hand, you can think of it as a little bit like an app store for risk applications, an app store that is discoverable by that the financial institutions can discover solutions and they can effectively access those solutions, onboard them and integrate them with their data in a very easy way. And we describe that a little bit as a plug and play way. We're doing some things that are quite clever. We are, we are creating in the environment for the institution we call a tenancy, in a way that is almost an extension of the operating environment of the institution itself. We call it a locked box because it is fully in the control and managed by the financial institution. They have the keys to that box. They have the ability to control, encrypt, and use that environment 
from which to develop the intelligence and the solutions that we're referring to. And that tendency becomes the basis by which we move data from the institution into a refined and compartmentalized form that can be used by applications from the RASTOR. And the institution itself effectively brings those applications into their controlled environment, runs it on their data, and consumes the insights. Now, all of that is done within their secure environment, but it also is done in a way that those applications are pre-validated. They are safe to deploy, but also there is a sense of conceptually testing what they can do, and they're aligned to use cases, so it makes it easy to understand how they can be deployed. And then in terms of the business itself, it works on the basis that the IDP has a relationship with the institution and effectively it is reselling those applications. So the whole procurement process, the effect of replacing many agreements to third parties with a single agreement to one party, and in turn, the producers are having to form many relationships with the various institutions. With all the barriers that entails, they form one single institution with IDP. This is all very much part of taking away some of the barriers, reducing the adoption time, the effort, and particularly the cost of working together to create innovative risk management. One factor that we haven't discussed, but I think it is really important, which is perhaps the the final factor, is culture. And I think we said at the start, you said that actually risk management is characterised by quite a conservative culture. So how do we help ourselves to be more innovative? Does IDP help with that? And what's the way forward there? I think IDP has a an opportunity to really help banks drive an innovative culture. And really there are two reasons behind that. Firstly, for the, the, the banks and insurers, IDP is all about making it much easier for them to try out a range of solutions, either with synthetic data or in a very controlled way with their their operating data. And why is that important? It's important because it allows them to experiment. It allows them to try out new solutions without investing a lot of time and money. In a world that is quite conservative and, and actually very adverse to failure, it creates a safe way that they can bring new practice potentially to bear and try before you buy or, or, or try a lot of things and fail fast so that you you can eventually alight on something that really works for your business. And then secondly, because IDP provides the technology producers with ready-made custom base, it creates a demand for their tools. So it becomes an attractive place for people to bring new solutions to bear, to make the investment in terms of building these solutions. It makes it easy for these people, therefore, to get a return on their investment because it reduces their marketing and their procurement costs. And we can help foster the access, therefore, that they have to a market so they can build product and develop product and you know, see benefit obtained from that. There are some great ideas and capability internally within these banks where the banks themselves can be producers. And if we can create a basis by which they can monetize their own applications, what they've built, and they can therefore further invest in those applications, but also by creating that a basis to have the ability to develop applications for a wider market. You also change the nature of how people see their role and the sense that, that they can experiment internally and that they can develop new solutions and those solutions can be brought, brought to bear. And then finally, I think in terms of the ability for IDP to help innovation, 
is because the producers are able to monetize their product far more easily than they can today, they can bring products to the market that are at a cheaper price. They can bring in products to the market that are much more pay to play with lower levels of a contractual commitment than they've previously been able to offer given the barriers they've had to go over. And that in itself makes it easier to see new solutions being brought to bear in this space. So all in all, I think this creates a really quite exciting environment really to shift the level of innovation that we see in the risk and compliance space today. Thank you, Mark. So I'll attempt to, to sum up, which is that we think that risk needs to, to innovate, to, to digitalize, and we think there's a positive agenda out there for doing so. You can summarize that agenda as we need to optimize, we need to be more active. And to achieve that, we need to innovate differently, but that innovation needs to bring together data, skills, technology, capital, and culture. Uh, we're also trying to explore whether the, the IDP platform can also help bring those uh, factors together to accelerate progress. So I hope that was of interest to everybody. If you would like to find out more information on the, the standards work that OREX are doing, then you can go to the OREX websites. And Mark, if people wanted to find out more about IDP, where would they, where would they need to go? We have a website, Salmon. It's uh, idp.orx.org. Or they can find us on the LinkedIn uh, Innovation Data Platform. Or alternatively, I'm very happy with email me directly at mark.cook at orx.org. Um, and that's a cook with me. I'm happy to answer any questions. That's it from us. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your attention. Thanks, Mark, for joining me today. Uh, hopefully, you found it an interesting, even inspiring conversation about uh, innovation and risk, two words that don't often go together, but we need to increasingly. As I said at the outset, please stay tuned for the fantastic OREX news team and the top five operational risk events from the last month. Hello and welcome. My name is Lily Richardson. I'm the RX News Manager. And in case you haven't heard of RX News, we're a subscription service from RX, which covers publicly reported operational risk loss events in the financial sector from across the globe. Now, I'd like to introduce Fern, the RX News Assistant Manager for Editorial. Thank you, Lily. Hi, everyone. In this month's episode, we'll take a brief look at the top five largest losses from April 2022, all reported in US dollars. We'll also give you an overview of two stories about breaches of ESG regulations, specifically relating to greenwashing. For this podcast, I'd like to welcome Stanka, one of our foreign news researchers, who will kick us off with the top five. So in fifth, we've got Westpac, who was fined $20.3 for maintaining and charging fees to deregistered company accounts. In fourth, Banco do Brasil was defrauded of $22 million by its loan subsidiary, Banco do Brasil Consórcio. The third largest loss was Wells Fargo's $32.5 million settlement for self-dealing its employees' pension plan. In second, JP Morgan was sued for $272 million by an eyewear company for allowing fraudulent transfers out of its accounts. 
The largest loss of the month was to the nation of Habima Pomo, who settled a class action for 500 million on behalf of their online lenders that were charging extortionate interest rates. Thanks, Tanka. And now we are moving on to this month's key topic, breaches of ESG regulations. So, Stanka, can you please tell us what happened in the case between the US Department of Justice and Deutsche Bank, where a whistleblower complained about greenwashing allegations at Deutsche's asset management company, DWS? So, this first story is about the DOJ censoring Deutsche Bank for failing to report a potential legal matter related to greenwashing allegations at DWS. Back in January 2021, Deutsche signed a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or DPA for short, which required the bank to report potential legal matters as soon as they arose. However, it seems that Deutsche only officially disclosed the issue in its annual report released in March 2022, about a year after it became aware of greenwashing concerns at DWS. That's really interesting. What exactly were these allegations? They relate to DWS's claims that ESG is at the heart of everything it does and that its ESG standards are above industry average. In practice, it seems that they've struggled to actually define and implement an ESG strategy. The Wall Street Journal revealed that in a 2020 report, DWS said that it was investigating over half of the $900 billion that it held in assets at the time using an ESG-based strategy. In fact, only a fraction of those assets were invested using ESG criteria. There was no quantifiable or verifiable ESG integration for key asset classes at DWS. Desiree Fixler, their now former head of sustainability, was concerned that the asset manager was misrepresenting its adherence to ESG standards. However, the firm maintained that third-party investigations had found no substance to the allegations. So when did Deutsche actually find out about these claims? Allegedly, as early as March 2021, only two months after the DPA was signed. Fixler emailed Karl von Rohr, Deutsche's deputy chief executive and DWS chair, to voice her concerns. Deutsche asked PwC to investigate, but the auditor dismissed the concerns. In August 2021, the Wall Street Journal began reporting on Fixler's allegations, which triggered probes by the SEC, the DOJ, and the German regulator Baffin. Two months later, Deutsche hired a U.S. law firm to review the claims again. And what followed the investigations? The news about the greenwashing allegations wiped 1 billion euros from DWS's market capitalization in a day. In 2020, DWS had reported that 459 billion euros in assets were ESG integrated. But after the DOJ investigation, that number dropped by 75% to just 115 billion euros. So is this an isolated incident or should we expect to see regulators take ESG more seriously in the future? Well, actually, it seems like regulators are, are looking to enforce ESG standards more strictly across the board. In July 2021, the British Chancellor announced new Sustainability Disclosure Requirements, or SDR, which will be implemented across all relevant sectors of the economy. Additionally, the Advertising Standards Authority, the UK's advertising watchdog, is expected to issue a decision which deems HSBC's climate-focused ads as misleading. The ads specifically refer to HSBC's tree planting and their transition to net-zero emissions, but they fail to mention the bank's massive fossil fuel investments. The SSE has actually also established an environmental task force back in March 2021, 
which has just issued its first enforcement action related to a Brazilian mining company. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, of course. Um, in April 2022, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC for short, charged the Brazilian mining company Valley with making false and misleading disclosures about the safety of its dams before the Brumadinho Dam disaster in January 2019. When the dam collapsed, it released nearly 12 million cubic tons of toxic waste, equivalent of 50,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The toxic waste buried alive over 150 people, and it poisoned the Paropeba River. The disaster caused catastrophic environmental, social and economic devastation in the region. In total, 270 people died. This is considered one of the worst mining disasters in history. In the days that followed the dam collapsed, Valley's market capitalization fell by over $4 billion and its American depository shares, which traded on the New York Stock Exchange, lost more than 25% of its value. Subsequently, Valley's corporate credit rating was downgraded to junk status. Can you please give us a few more details about Valley's breaches? Absolutely. So from October 2016 to December 2018, Valley repeatedly reassured investors through regular statements, presentations, sustainability reports and ESG webinars that its dams had been audited to address previous issues. Additionally, through multiple false statements, material omissions and other deceptive practices, Valley violated the anti-fraud provisions of the US federal securities laws. Just before we finish, in April 2022, ORX published Climate and Operational Risk, the ORX Approach, which is a paper outlining how the industry considers climate and operational risk and ORX News started to add a climate flag to highlight relevant external event stories, such as the Brazilian mining event we've just discussed. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to know more about the top five losses, then please visit the ORX website, where you can find the top five losses for each month, as well as a range of up-risk reports and resources. You can also read the full digest for each of the stories discussed in this episode on the RX website. Just search rx.org. Join us next time to hear next month's top five losses. Thank you.